some people that have the you know that pain of glass you know as like that the, the the subjectivity in itself kind of like disrupted and nobody talks about this it's like that's the thing um you know th there are people that feel like zombies in the world so who cares about the, you know thing thinking zombies like <laughs> thoughts <laughs> thoughts experiments it's just like actually there are real people here that have those experiences and they feel this way because their subjectivity is kind of like uh disrupted so i think we need uh we need to have a closer look at this because i was like as i said fascinated with the subjectivity of the experiences and this is how I got actually interested in the phenomena. So it's like literally somebody uh, uh, came uh, came to me, and then I realized. So I I never I don't think I ever experienced depersonalization in the severe forms, but I think every each of our, one of us experienced at a certain point in some way or another. everyone uh, this is Balash Kegel I'm the host of the I scientist workshop uh, podcast where we explore artificial intelligence science and the scientist behind the science I'm it's my great pleasure to host today uh, Anna Chaunika Anna is a philosopher and a cognitive scientist she's studying consciousness self-consciousness and especially embodied cognition and psychological conditions like depersonalization. So hi Anna, how are you today? Hello, I'm fine, thank you and uh, uh, thank you for inviting me. This is uh, exciting and I look forward for the next steps and the questions. Yes, yes, it's, it's very exciting. I have a lot of questions, probably we can't finish all of them, but let's try. So uh, my first encounter with you was through the work you did with Michael Levin uh, on, I would say, like embodied neuroscience maybe you correct me if i'm wrong this is basically challenging the the classical picture uh, where cognition happens purely in the nervous system so we will definitely talk about this work but before let's start with your with the self-introduction so uh, what especially piqued my interest when i was watching your your youtube videos that you define yourself as an empirical philosopher as opposed to an armchair philosopher. So what do you mean by that? Yes, so um, so roughly there is this tradition um, going back to Greece where you have philosophers like Plato where um, they're basically mathematicians and um, they're, they're doing a lot of like thinking uh, with arguments and objections and everything else. And then on the other hand, you had philosophers like Aristotle, they kind of like like to, you know, interact with the with the world out there, and um, and especially the biology, so dissecting frogs and looking at how things are actually working, right, and then try to make sense of it. So it's two ways, which I think they are complementary. They they need to be addressed together. It's like how we approach a certain problem, either just by looking at it, as like try to make make the measures, and by the bullet because you know that whatever you measure. You can never measure like entirely, right? So there's you just like pick one bit of the reality of, of the phenomena you're interested in, and just try to you know put the finger, put the number on that one. 
uh, or you take the other uh, side where you basically look at something which is, how should I put it, abstract or universal, and then work your way down to, you know, more, um, you know, um, empirically based things. So there are ups and downs and pro and cons for each of one of these approaches, but um, yeah, so after a while in my career, I was trained as an analytic philosopher and I realized that, uh, yeah, I was not satisfied with that approach. I said, I, I, I needed something. Um, yeah, I, I want to put like measure and put a number and buy the bullet and say, okay, I, I can't have it all. I don't, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to write like Kant, uh, critique for pure reasons or, you know, like a system where, where I explain everything. Uh, from some upper right perspective, um, uh, I said, okay, I'm going to be a bit more uh, a modest <laughs> uh, and just like a confined to something that is um, measurable. And um, yeah, I can contrast, uh, I can, you know, poke reality with my finger <laughs> and uh, try to, to measure. So let's say that in that's to use metaphor, in this case, I think I'm more tactile researcher rather than visual researcher so i don't want to sit and think and actually when you when you think about it just like people say i see to understand to mean i understand i see hence i understand right uh so i i don't want to understand by seeing it i want to understand by interacting with it in a very tactile way and obviously it's more messy <laughs> but that's okay it's also more real you know <laughs> yeah so that's that bit like the the background. So I was trained as a as a philosopher, um, and um, analytic philosopher. Uh, I worked on um, um, physicalism and qualia. So basically, how exactly you know we have subjective experiences rising from you know matter, physical matter, and um, my approach was like. You know, the classical problem was like you have the fundamental level, which is the physical level, and on the top, you have the cherry on the top, which is the mental uh, events or mental uh, phenomena. And then obviously the, the problem is how, how to how you basically connect the two. And um, um, my approach was um, to basically look at the level, which is instead of like trying to connect like the two opposites, is to understand uh, very humbly and very slowly how you know the physical level transforms into the chemical one and from the chemical into organical one biological one and hence blah, blah. so um yeah so that's you you'll probably see that actually it's connected with the, the paper that you just mentioned about you know cells and non-neurons and you know uh, mike levin's work um is because this is precisely he is doing right so it's like you take um uh bits from reality and see how they interact inter interconnect with each other at the biochemical level and then you see how basically this unfolds into something that later on um like an organist like a human organist say well there is something what it is like for us to you know drink a glass of wine or have this conversation yeah um and uh, speaking of wine so because i did my phd in burgundy uh and one of my uh in Dijon, France. So uh, I um, I worked. Uh, probably know the um, famous Mary, the scientist uh, argument by Frank Jackson, an Australian. There's this idea. Do, do you know? Do you know the argument? No. Otherwise, 
Wait, so it's quite simple arguments. He said this like um, um, imagine you have um, um, a scientist called Mary who is born um, in a black and white environment and stays in a black and white environment till, let's say when it's 20 something and um, and she learns through um, I don't know television and books and everything everything what is happening in the human brain when one perceives the red tomato like color right so she has basically all the physical facts of the perception of colors in the brain uh but that experience of actually seeing red right and then now imagine it's like when you release her from the environment and you show her a tomato well she says something oh that's boring because I already know what it is like to actually, you know, see a tomato because I know already everything is happening in the brain when you see a tomato. Or there is something new, right? Something that you basically cannot learn or perceive just by through like third-person knowledge, like um, from books or, yeah, or you basically need to go through the event, through the phenomena to actually have an understanding of that uh, phenomena. And uh, my uh, my argument was like, well, it's like, uh, who cares about red tomatoes? Like, I'm from Burgundy. How about the experience of like drinking wine, <laughs> red wine? <laughs> because again, it's like that example is very visual and distant. So when you when you change the example to a different senses, it's like you have an entirely different, an entirely different, um, you know, um, stage for your problem, right? So then, is there something what it is like to actually have red wine inside yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I yes, you know, many people will say yes, there is, yeah, as as opposed to just like seeing a tomato from um a side, yeah. So um so starting with this example, which is like anecdotal, but actually I think it's quite important. So our perceptual experiences, subjective experience, and conscious experience are necessarily multisensory in nature, and we focus too much on you know what we I call the distal senses, right? The senses that put us in. Reality, whereas kind of like tend to overlook like the proximal sense is the one that actually put us, you know, in touch with our bodies. And yeah, so I want to start with the body, not the mind. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I think that's, for me, that's the most important starting point. Um, yes, uh, yes. So so this reminds me actually Mark Son's argument about uh, qualia. He says the same thing that where that question went a bit sideways was exactly because they posed it as a question on the visual system and perception. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we look at more primal um, senses like pain, then it's not possible to not feel it. So pain is itself a first person experience otherwise, because it's a feeling and you cannot not feel a feeling. But um, so, I'm sorry, this is the philosophy in me. So um, I, I believe that um, the perception of red and the perception of pain is necessarily subjective in the sense it's coming from the first person's perspective of, yeah. uh, I think the, the, the point I want to make is that um, there is something about the perception of um, inner senses, like interoceptive, like, pain and other things that are necessarily happening like here rather than there uh, and uh, they are intrinsically related to the survival organism right so there is this beautiful example I think by Frédéric de Vignemont she says it's one of her papers just like if I 
I mean, the perception of the moon and the sky and the perception of the snake close to my skin, my foot is like really very different for my brain. I mean, if you're optimal and functional, you, you, you should probably just like care more about what is close to your um, body rather than what is um, on the sky. And uh, everything that basically enters in our body, like the air or the food, and I think it's, um, it's crucial for uh, survival, yeah? Uh, so that's, uh, that, that's, but I would say that in both cases, like the perception of the, the moon and the perception of the snake and the pain necessarily comes from the subjective point of view, um, from the experience of the subject. Uh, and that's something that I, one of the reasons I am actually very grateful for, I've been, been trained in analytic philosophy, uh, with, uh, uh, Martini da Rumelin, and she has this beautiful argument. Um, she's based in Freiburg, in Switzerland, and she has this beautiful argument of um, how we cannot talk about experience without talking about a subject of an experience. And that subject of an experience necessarily is kind of like a body, right? And that's a similar point is made by Galen Strauss, right? So it cannot be, doesn't make any sense of talking about experiences. <laughs> One needs to talk about subjective experience by definition, because those experiences are given to someone, to a subject of an experience that's kind of like necessarily embedded. So this means that from this point of view, necessarily any perception is subjective in that sense, right? Just like it, it it's related to a subject of a perception, a subject of an experience. Yes, yes, yes. No, I agree. I agree with this. Mark says that the problem with vision is that it is you have a non-conscious vision mm. so it's it's there is this separation but there's no, no such thing as non-conscious pain and but maybe there is we will talk about the personalization because i really want to understand what mm -hmm. it is but <laughs> let's uh, let's go back a little bit to the the paper of, uh, with, with michael uh, where you make a point about the immune system very particularly but i think the bigger point is that uh, cognition doesn't happen purely in the nervous system it happens in the body so it, it uh, challenges a little bit this uh, pure physicalist notion where you have the body and you have a nervous system and the nervous system creates the mind and you talk about how the immune system communicates with the nervous system and how they, they it, it itself is sort of conscious and so what I'm interested in the most in this is that basically what I see emerging there is that our cognition is made up by subsystems who themselves are or seem to be conscious. Yeah, so I so I need to start with the disclaimer. So um, the C word, <laughs> the conscious word, it's a word I try to avoid for many, many reasons. Uh, so consciousness is not a word that actually I'm using very much in my research. And uh, that actually, you're not going to find that word in our paper with Mike. Um, that was completely I who made it up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and there is actually, um, first, there is a philosophical reason for that. Because as I said, it's related to what I said earlier about Martine, Nida Rumenin. So... Um, I, I was planning to write a paper called why consciousness is not a thing 
and I'm very careful when I say there is no I, I, no sorry there is not there is no such a thing as consciousness this is what I wanted to call it <laughs> and people jump at me and say what do you mean it's like what do you mean consciousness doesn't exist you're eliminativist about consciousness no 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 I didn't say that I said there is not no, such a thing as consciousness so Consciousness is not a thing, um, and by the fact that we are using the pronoun consciousness, people are tempted to slide, you know, to slip into um, kind of like tacit understanding, like there is, um, I don't know, this object, right? Uh, and uh, and then this object, which is, uh, let's say, perfume, I just like can move it from point A to point B, can be localized somewhere, I don't know, in the head, the back of your head, the front of your head somewhere or in the outer world yeah in the spiritual world um but i think that's that's a misleading way of looking at uh, it uh, i want to claim that uh consciousness should be some always related to something else like like a like a property conscious, so conscious experiences conscious perception conscious information processing conscious states conscious phenomena i don't know something uh which basically um shows that that's um that's a state that needs some sort of like underlying stuff going on right um and i think that's 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 super important because then you you avoid um you know this tacit understanding of like consciousness being like movable from point a to point b just like download from the head and put it in an artificial system oh yeah yes like i'm going to live in my uh artificial body because my consciousness has been just like moved from point a to from point b but that's the thing that's um that's wrong and this is something that's an argument we're trying slowly to build with mike with this paper which is the first of a string of paper that actually we plan to write and this is i said it's like we take let's let's take it easy because actually this is big yeah so it's like you don't want to shake the coconut tree too much because then you know you people get hurt right too many coconuts are, are falling down right so you need to i need to take it like uh slowly and the first coconut i want to shake is this idea that um the brain and the body are too i mean the, the even the distinction between brain and body right um uh as if the, somehow the brain is like the locus of the mind uh, which i think is an tacit inheritance from the past of the you know the mind body dualism and um the mind body problem and we're just like remove the psyche and the mind with the brain but basically we want to say exactly the same thing right um uh and that's i think that's that's a problem so we so that's the first starting point and the second starting point is that um i think the problem is posed this way because we endorse a tacit adult-centric perspective when we look at the phenomena if you take a bottom-up developmental biological phenomena uh understanding like approach on how things basically develop then you get a very different picture so my favorite example is that of a tree so if you want to understand how a tree works so what is a tree and you look just at the branches and the trunk uh when the tree is already kind of like adult yeah uh yes you you, you have like a clear picture of a tree is but it's not the entire story 
you basically need to uh, see what's under the visible parts, like the roots that is not visible immediately. There is something there. And I take that as a metaphor for what uh, some people call the unconscious, right? There's like the things that are not necessarily above the threshold of our awareness that we just like point to it, just like, yeah. So it's the roots, the deep roots, yeah. Um, and the second important point is that that those roots, they basically the tree comes from a seed, right? And and the seed has a very different shape, a structural shape uh, than a full-fledged tree. So if we want to understand what what the tree is, one needs to understand the the transformation of the seed into a tree within a certain environment, within certain uh, circumstances. And I think it's the same for the human cognition, right? If you want to understand what the human cognition is, it's not enough just like to take the Turing test, <laughs> which is that the classic adult thing is just like people say, oh, let's solve some chess problems. And then we boil down to, uh, it's like, it's not working like that, actually. You need so many other mechanisms in place before you actually even get there. Um, and going back to neurons, so if you take development perspective, actually we have neurons in our belly before we have neurons in our brain. So it's like we literally think with our bodies and perceive the world with our body before we perceive with uh, with the brain if we take a development perspective. And because we are self-organizing organism, right? Um, again, we have cells before we have neurons and this kind of like develops, um, yeah. And the reason why we focus on the immune system is because, well, uh, you need to have some sort of like, you know, system in place that tells your organism, oh, this is you, this is not you, this is self, this is non-self. And keeps track of this like core, thing that needs to develop and be flexible enough so there's a trade between you know keeping track of the self while at the same time engaging with the environment to get what you need and to make the exchange right in a in a highly dynamical position so um and based on this idea what we want to say is that well if you take if you keep in mind these two points then it's a super important to bear in mind that probably what we call cognitive processing is the result first of all of some of some highly dynamic interconnected like mechanism that evolves and evol develops and unfolds and can go wrong actually, which is for instance the case of cancer, right? Um, and it's not it's not just in the head, so it's not just in the brain. It's uh, it's distributing across the entire single cell in the body, and there is like some concentration of some um, connection that is happening super fast within the neurons but the idea is like in order that that supervenes that's on the top of something else that actually again like the roots of the tree make sure that actually get all the nutrients for the thing to grab the you know um the energy um if you don't have that you actually we, all, all of us kind of like know it is like if you're hungry or you need to go to loo good luck with touring test right it's just like you're not going to pass it very quickly yeah so um, I think some of the things are kind of like uh, overlooked and we want to just like put 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 back the, the spotlight and under the like the, the yeah, the humble organism, right? Um, and in doing so, I was like um, inspired by a bunch of people. So I'm, I'm not claiming that this is like, you know, me or new or everything else. I'm just like a part of the bigger team. Um, but I really, I'm, I'm really big fan of um, Pamela Lyons' work on this and some other people that basically distinguish between the anthropogenic and biogenic approach to cognition. So uh, in the anthropogenic uh, approach is like you take the human cognition as a case 
example, and then you, you work your way down um, and you basically take the human cognition as a paradigmatic case of like cognitive processing. Whereas the biogenic approach is to focus on what makes human and what humans have in common with other living systems, because this is basically, as like, that's the basic, right? It's like basic imperative is just like, stay alive. <laughs> you can't cognize anything. You can't do any type of touring test if you lost track of the, like the basic imperative, stay alive. And that's something we can, sh we share with any yes, single Yes, yes, I agree, I agree. But this is exactly, you know, when I watch a neuron trying to find his friends, you know, it's really, it's really hard not to see consciousness inside, or at least some kind of agency. It's not a, it's not an object that's you know like a machine that just tries to to reach out. It really looks like it has a goal, mm. right? So it's it's still a, an interesting question to me. How then, if we accept this, that each of our cell is has its own consciousness and agency to maintain itself. And then they make up tissues and they make up organs and they make up me. So how, how are those consciousness levels, even if we don't use the sewer or we can no, call it like agency or something like that. So how do, how does this happen that you have these levels of, of agencies that build up higher level agencies and then they, you need to have communications up and down, right? Yeah, because I think maybe maybe we are dealing with the wrong ontology here. So in the sense like, um, in the sense of looking, okay, so you have the building bricks, yeah, the building blocks, and you ask yourself, I just, as you just did, right? Um, so how we put this together to build whatever, just like hierarchy or something. Or you can ask yourself, so maybe what is really fundamental is not, it's not the the bricks like the individuals but um i don't know for lack of a better word because i i really think we don't we lack the conceptual toolbox to actually address this in a i think we need new concepts <laughs> uh, and we don't have concept on this but let's say is like the way things are interconnected and communicate with each other right so it's like that's the that's the relatedness relationality is like the way things are kind of like reach to each other and exchange information so so that that very process of like connectedness i think that's that's fundamental um and so there is something in the message there is something in the way things kind of like communicate with each other that may emerge in us in in certain organisms a certain type of experiences when in humans we have this like uh subjectivity the qualia what we call it right uh but i think we yeah, as I said, it's like I don't think we have the conceptual toolbox to, you know, map that, uh, you know, just as you said, it's like how you call conceptually the very fact of a neuron trying to reach another neuron. Because I think what is really important is that the neuron A and the neuron B is the tendency to, and I think that one is, that's fundamental. So why they are doing that, right? Um, and I think, I don't think we have a concept for that, uh, a good concept, yeah. Um, to describe like like that that drive to communicate, to exchange. It's like, it's like love. Huh? Yeah. Or hate. <laughs> yeah, because some things ah, will be like, oh. yeah, But it, that's exactly the issue, like the immune system, exactly what you were writing about in that paper is, 
its its actual goal is to recognize what is foreign hmm. the body so there must be some kind of concept of even like every level of this uh, agency of some kind of me and not me right yes but there there is also um uh, allies right so it's like you have things in you that are not you but in the same time they are you right uh and this is the topic for my uh our, our second paper we almost got accepted almost finger cross finger cross uh as where we look at uh in humans um you know how cells basically connect to another human cells in pregnancy right because mm. what the i mean the immune system of the pregnant person is mind-blowing right imagine you know it's just like okay so here's the self here's another self another self but it's still okay because it's kind of like um you know we are in this together right so they create like a new ecosystem so to speak um a third one right so it's not two it's not one it's three or maybe more right so it's almost like a new entity um happening there um and this, this there is fascinating work uh on this by uh jill moore um and colleagues um yeah and i think that's again that's super important because then again at that level what is really important is like the level of negotiation that is happening between two living organisms uh, and we are making the point on this quite strongly because I think this is super important. It's not an individual within an environment because the utero is not an environment. <laughs> the utero is not an object. The utero is another living system. So basically, it's a living system within another living system. Yeah. So the the complexity is even more, you know, um, um, important right right so it's like um and it's one of the things i kind of like um developing my work um with this idea of like when the need to go back to the square one um and as a philosopher i was like so surprised to see that philosophers they kind of like obsessed about death <laughs> um, no but no birth yeah uh and i have a book on this coming so uh yeah watch this page about this it's like you, you mentioned in one of your talks that uh, if, if Descartes could have got pregnant he would have had a different path yeah. of philosophy <laughs> right now would have a completely different um uh, you know conceptual toolbox discussing about things right um so as an AI researcher, I found some of the concepts that you developed in the paper very interesting. Like I knew what homeostasis was. It's about maintaining some vital metrics in the body. And if the body goes out, like you're thirsty, then you drink, you breathe, you keep your temperature in a certain range. Uh, and this is something that we can actually sort of form formalize in, in AI. So we have systems that that maintain certain certain metrics in a certain range or optimize some others but what's interesting about the living system is that it it creates itself so it it's it's a beautiful word i love this word autopoietic because it means i'm creating myself so i have agency not about what i do but who i become yeah. and um, so when it grows it develops and it develops by itself and so it needs more than just homeostasis and there were two words there that i learned one of was an allostasis 
and the other was homeoresis. And I find these incredibly important from the AI point of view because we are not even aware of these concepts, like systems that maintain their existence and their metrics, but through development. So you need not yeah. uh, to maintain a static state, but the dynamic state that develops. Yeah. So can you explain this? And so how, how, how do they change our concepts of cognition and maybe cons cons consciousness? Yeah, so this is a, a big topic. So, um, so first of all, going back to homeostasis. So actually, this one potential starting point is like this. Um, actually, Nick Wilkinson preprinted, um, submitted a paper today, and we preprinted the paper where, again, we combine this idea of like basic homeostatic states and. Um, development of perspective because as I said it's like if you take the things how they unfold you need to go back literally in this square one yeah so we look at homeostatic self-regulation neutral uh and uh we we propose this idea that one basic and highly overlooked aspect is the fact that um uh homeostasis necessarily needs to be uh defined in relation to um the fundamental force of gravity, right? With the fact that you, uh, you know, you 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 are an object, right, in the world, and you need to just like you, yeah. And that depends on your medium, right, where you are, right, in air and water, in on Earth, right. It's like very different. So, the classic example of this the, with the Newton apple, just like falls from the tree, right? But an apple falls down on air, but goes up in water, right? Yeah, so uh, so the way you relate with um, the environment, most fundamental force, which is the force of gravity, I think necessarily should be built in any type of successful system of like self-regulatory system because that's that's something you need to just like navigate the environment. You need to figure out how you do that. And in humans, it's even more interesting because in humans you have, we are all born in um, liquid, right, in amniotic fluid. And, and actually somebody made um, our um, uh, author, co-author in the papers, um, uh, Takashi Kigami, is like doing a lot of work on um, um, artificial life and artificial consciousness. He made this, he made this uh, beautiful remark saying, well, it's like, it's like, you know that life actually emerge in water, right? <laughs> So that's an interesting thing. It's like why, what? But anyway, so in in our case, so literally we are in, within a um, uh, liquid environment, and obviously that the the way you um, so that's the first point. It's like how you relate to gravity. And the second one is like there is always movement. Yeah, it's like there was always something going on, moving. So you have like uh, starters. You have like exchanges. It's highly dynamic from the very beginning. And inside uh, too inside too it's just, it's just like it's a constant exchange and things can go wrong and you have miscarriages and you know uh people get uh, a pregnant person can get a disease and um from being pregnant right so not from the outside yeah so that's there's many many things that uh, need to be taken into account but ba basic idea here as you said um in the autopoiesis is something that varela beautifully described and with his colleagues and disciples and students is that it's an open system <laughs> so it's vulnerable right so it's just like um 
it needs this like openness and vulnerability to sustain like on the fly. Um, so going back to your question. Um, so yes, homeostasis, homeostasis is super important in relation to this like dynamic. And I think they, they, they're almost like, I, will, I want to say like two faces of the same coin, but actually three faces, right? It's, it's, it's just like everything is um, interconnected. And again, I think, I think we don't have the concepts to describe this. Like, so how you kind of like disentangle? So we decide, disentangle them conceptually because, well, we are used to this. Just like here is point B, here is point B, and here is a brick. How can I connect brick to brick two? But that's one way of putting things. Going back to my uh, Descartes thing, right? Uh, maybe there are some other ways to actually look into things that are not really uh, so. And maybe that will bring us back to some um, other languages in the in the humanity, right? So maybe that's something comes from the way English words map reality. Maybe there is some, I don't know, maybe some languages somewhere in the world that basically map the reality a very different way. They they have a way to describe exactly what I'm saying. Uh, you know, this this interconnected way of like um, being together. So uh, the, the way to go forward, I would say is, uh, yeah, it's like to, um, you know, start listening <laughs> from what is coming from a different perspective, because I think that's um, that's that's super important. And getting out of this um, uh, very heavy inheritance that we have between, uh, you know, the mind, body, the soul, um, the material, immaterial, and uh, I think that's that's something that uh, um, is still lingering. I, I actually, this is an example I'm giving all the time. I mean, the distinction between mind and body is so deeply rooted in our society that we literally have different buildings. If we need to go to the, uh, you know, mental oh, institution, and you know, if I have a problem with the liver, I'm going to an institution. If I have a problem, I'm going. So it's like clearly we institutionalize yeah. this, and to a point that will be built different like branches. Um, but you know, you and me were kind of like just one saying, I don't see your mind floating above your yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. And somebody said that basically physical illnesses usually or usually often get cured by looking at your mind, mm -hmm. psychology, and psych psych psychological illnesses often get cured by fixing your body. Yeah, so there's beautiful work, emerging work showing that many of the self disorders uh they actually highly related with inflammatory responses of the immune system which kind of like makes sense because the immune system is the one keeping track of the self so and then cancer on the other yeah. side yeah. yeah yeah so that's um yeah so i actually wanted to dig dig deeper a little bit in this uh almost like like epistemic question like how to do science about first person experience especially when when you have this view that you have where everything is connected to everything so if we have sort of like a, a gestalt view of the body yet the toolkit that science gives us is reductionist so we want to take them apart because we want to understand the pieces and so how how what, what is the methodology for for such science where you don't want to take it apart because it's intrinsically the the system yeah, so that's that's a very good question and a very difficult one. And actually, that's something I'm very careful in my research in my lab. So I, I don't think there is there is one method. I think the 
the the solution here is um, to approach it through different angles and then try to put the pieces of the puzzle together while bearing in mind that pro probably the, the things you are looking for are highly kind of like superimposed on you by the culture background that you have within a given, given constant context, right? So, you, you know, the way, I don't know, a Japanese person approaches certain things, the way a French person approaches exactly the same phenomena might be heavily de determined by, you know, the, the cultural uh, background. So we have, uh, because as I said, we are literally born through others and we need others from the very beginning. So we are highly social creature, ontologically cannot exist without others. So this means that we, we depend upon a, a, um, a massive network of, um, you know, received knowledge, um, you know, embodied practices and interaction, and everything else. So what I was saying about the body, you know, the fact that internally we already have this like kind of like highly sophisticated entanglement between the different system. I think that applies to, to know how the humans are basically in the environment and the social environment as well, because as I said, it's like we are, we cannot be alone. <laughs> we cannot ex exist uh, without the others, literally. Um, so, so this means that we need different methodologies. So um, we need lived experiences. We need people to tell us what they feel and how we feel, because I think that's super important. We need also to measure physiological, physiologically the body, right? So uh, I, um, James Ladyman gave me this like beautiful example. So, you know, we take a tennis ball, you know, it's this tennis ball and um, I'm, I'm measuring. Um, so I, I take a tennis ball and I, I'm measuring your skin response, let's say, or heartbeats. Yeah. Why are you watching me? And I smash the tennis ball, right? Nothing happened in your body because, well, you know, that's tennis ball. But if I put a smiley on the tennis ball, right? It's like a smile and two dots and like a face and a smash the tennis ball. You still know it's a tennis ball, but your body will react as if that is a person, even though you know it's a tennis ball. So there is a way your body pre-reflectively kind of like for your own sake reacts to something, anticipates something on the basis like, oh, that should be a face, a cute face or something that shouldn't be that. So there's danger, right? So, um, so that's a subject, not an object. So you need to switch yourself on a very different mode. So so, and that's also very important to measure, right? So how the body reacts to certain stimuli, not just subjective experiences, because people will tell you something. Actually, just um, we're about to print a, a study that we did on depersonalization. <laughs> and um, we found something very interesting because the, the way people report the explicit measure of agencies and what you find and the way they actually behave, you see that's something very, very different, yeah? So it's like the the... The, the way you feel a phenomena that, and actually how your body behaves in a certain way uh, in, in a certain context is something very, very different. So hence the importance to actually have different methodologies. And then you have methodologies like the neural ones, which are also super important. So you need to see what is happening in the brain. Um, and all this ideally when people do task in a, a real time and, you know, naturalistic context, because, you know, putting someone in scan, uh, looking at 
picture of face is not necessarily a, a social thing, right? Whereas like if you if you need to see your boss <laughs> to ask for a raise, that's that's highly <laughs> relevant. So uh um a more naturalistic way. So I think the, the answer to your question is uh, multifaceted. So you we need methodologies and hence my bet in developing my lab as an interdisciplinary hub because obviously you can't do that alone. <laughs> I mean it can it can be good at one or two let's say three methods if you are really really good but you know again you depend on others right you just like take the data measured by other people just like rely on what they do right as we rely on the knowledge we receive from others so I think it's um it's a sketchy you know endeavor and very fragile <laughs> but uh, well that's the beauty of it yeah so you mentioned the depersonalization and I found it a fascinating subject for several reasons. One of them is that it seems to me that it's a quiet, first of all, it's not a black and white condition. You can mm. have more or less depersonalized. And the other thing I'm thinking about is that today it's pretty widespread. And so its consequences are not just happen for the person, but also for the society. Like we can like even societies can be depersonalized in, in a certain sense. So I, I want to uh, dig into this. So let's start from the beginning. Like what is depersonalization and how does it look like? Because you mentioned how does it look like from the outside and from the inside? Because maybe this is not the same. And what is your theory about it? Uh, you mentioned terms like sensory attenuation and self-forgetting. So what are those like, like those cloud of terms and what's happening in a depersonalized person? Yeah, so um, this is like um, um, a, a very big topic and um, I, I have a lot of research on this. So I'll try to make it short to like make it like a compact. Um, but let me say that I started when I started to um, investigate this phenomenon, I was in London and I am um, and actually, spend speaking of like first person experiences, I spent I spent some time with people with the personalization, trying to understand how they feel and interacting with them. Um, and I actually keep um, these interactions with them. And whenever I organize a workshop on depersonalization, I'm always having a speaker with lived experience of depersonalization giving a talk about how that person lives with and feels the personalization and, and then put the researchers in the same room. And I can assure you the vibe is very different in the room <laughs> when I have the actual phenomena um, condition in the room. Yeah. And um, I think that's, that's uh, super important because sometimes um, researchers going back to the armchair, I think you can very easily be sidetracked and just like be just in your head <laughs> because you have a theory, but actually it's not really, the phenomena can be very two different things yeah so uh that being said so um going back to um actually everything is related because this was it's my thinking um so i started with this idea that um uh, selfhood necessarily needs to be related with movement yeah because you cannot I mean, there is no self without the movement. I mean, there is no self-organizing living system without movement, yeah. So this means that um, movement for sensory and sensory perception because everything goes like together. Um, and when you uh, move in the world, uh, 
this this beautiful example by um, uh, Jakob Limanovskin, uh, Carl Friesen paper. So, um, you know, in, when I when you pick like something in a tree, like a um, cherry or whatever, you are you pay very much attention to you. You are very much aware what what is happening at the contact between your fingertips and the cherry, but you don't really feel you know your arm moving, but actually your arm is moving and there is a sensation there. Yeah. Uh, it's just like it's and it's processed successfully by by your you know uh, body and brain. It's just like it's processed so smoothly, but it can be you can afford to leave it in the background, right? This is what you call the transparent background. Yeah, the transparent background. It's just like you you is there without you realizing it's been there, right? Um, and it gets obvious, it gets visible when uh, what they call there is a crack in the window, right? So if that transparency is like cracked then two things emerge. First of all, you see that there was something there when you thought that there's nothing there. Uh, and second is like that very something which is there transparently allowed you to feel immersed in the reality because now your view is blocked, is blurred, you know, so it's obscure, right? You can't really see the window because it's kind of like, you see the window that allows you to see outside, right? So we want to say that actually the sense of self is that transparent kind of like, phenomena that uh, surrounds every single one of our experiences and we don't pay attention to it because it's there all the time we do pay attention to it when something goes wrong right when for instance in meditation when you, i i attend to my subjectivity of my experience or so becomes an object of my awareness that becomes obvious it's there or when something like goes wrong gets disrupted um so for instance in the case of uh, depersonalization which is a condition that makes people feel detached from themselves and their body and they have like a pane of glass or a blurness between them and the reality, then um, what is happening there is that these people don't feel in touch with themselves anymore and they don't feel in touch with the, with the reality there. And there is like, obviously this is like very much an open question. Uh, where does it come from? But um, I think a fair speculation would be to say that whenever you cannot afford anymore for various reasons to uh, process the self in the background, because I don't know, you're feeling safe or overwhelmed or other things, then you, you need to basically, because for the survival purpose, you need to keep track of yourself doing stuff. But we know it's like, for instance, if you play tennis, if you or dance and you're too much aware of yourself, you're self-conscious and you're not so smoothly as possible. You know, so you stands in the way. So basically you stand in the way between yourself and self, so to speak, right? So kind of like um, this hyper-reflexivity. And this has been already um, you know, developed in, in the field, especially in relation to uh, schizophrenia and, um, and psychosis, this idea of hyper-reflexivity where people just like overthink their way through reality rather than just like being in a body um, in, immersed in the reality. And this is what, what what we add on the top of this idea is, as I said, is like this idea of movement, right? So it's like somatosensory attenuation means that we need to attenuate um, sensory information that is related with the self in movement, in reality, in acting in the world, right? So this means that you need to forget about the self in order to... Um, you know, connect with, yeah. So we want to say that it's not actually, it's not self-loss, but rather overlooking the self that's related to depersonalization. Um, it's like too much focus on that. 
And if that's the case, this means that uh, potential ways to help people to put them back into the body and out and you know getting out of the heads heads and the minds and just overthinking putting back into the body is to use sensory engagement active sensory engagement and movement in in reality yeah and again going back to something that we discussed at the beginning is like how different senses give you a very different sense of reality um so um the, the people that um you know, go through uh, ep you know uh, severe episodes of depersonalization whenever they um feel that they they get into one of those episodes they um they instinctively start moving around and touching things yeah so uh because touching objects is like saint thomas right just like i need to touch in order to say if it's real so the sense of touch give you a sense of reality more than the sense of vision why because it's most pervasive of all senses, right? It's just like, you cannot not touch. <laughs> so I'm having this discussion all the time with people working on sensory deprivation tanks and said, well, that's not sensory deprivation, that's sensory diminishment because if you are in water, you know, it's just like you're receiving stimulation or entire skin uh, and it cannot switch that. Yeah, it's, it's like you cannot, yeah. Even when you sleep, you still touch something, yeah. So that's your relation to the reality. And it's one of the senses that fascinates me the most, even more than the interoceptive one that are inside because that's the boundaries between the inner and outer, right? That gives you like that negotiation between the self and no self and the reality. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, fetuses spend a significant amount of time in the womb where vision is very low. Uh, touching themselves so that's the first sense we basically go into reality just like whoa what this is me this is not me and you know it's like when you touch yourself you get uh well stimulation uh like two sides yeah and a relational stimulation and actually beautiful study that show um um on twins by castiel and colleagues in 2010 i think where they show that they touch each other uh, when they have twins, it's just like yeah. they have a very good, different kinematics when they touch the, the siblings, whereas like the mm. uterus, right? So it's, and, and other studies that show where it's like when you, when they poke themselves in the eye, they realize, oh, that hurts. They, they then they approach their face slowly, <laughs> whereas like here, they go like that when it's like really slowly because they say, oh, that hurt. Don't do that again. So touch is the fundamental sense that puts us in reality and when these people felt detached from themselves and um, out of reality they they use a lot of like sensory information through tactile interactions and sometimes they use perfumes right they carry a bottle of perfumes with them and they give them a they give themselves just like a powerful shot of like highly powerful perfume and that again puts people um back uh into the body it's related Super again with with, uh, um, you know, as I said, it's like the survival senses, right? I need to eat, I need to relate with that. Uh, I see, it's lower, I see, I see. I mean, I have so many uh, thoughts, I don't even know where to start. I can connect it a little bit with John Verbecki's 4P, where this is sort of like a, a problem at the perspectival, where you decide what is relevant when you walk into a room you have your, let's say you are a speaker in a conference room, 
you, the things that become relevant to you that reaches your consciousness are very different from, let's say, if you are just uh, in the audience, mm. you just walk in to talk to somebody. And so this is in, in, in John's system, it's, it's a sort of like almost like automatic uh, filtering of the information that's out there because you need to filter because you have finite, you know, mm. finite computational capacity. You cannot have everything. So it seems to me that, that this uh, depersonalization is sort of like a disturbance at that level, right? Like, like the wrong things get relevant to you and then it disturbs you. So I am, so it's a slightly different. What I'm trying to say is, it's really different. What I want to say is like when that person walks on the stage and look at the things, that person receives lots of information already. That's already processed. It's not filtered. It's not left out. It's just like it's processed so fast and so smoothly that it's not, you don't need to actually pay attention because you just do it like when you walk, right? Just like when you walk, you don't think that you need to walk unless you're injured or something. You're very careful where you walk, right? It doesn't mean that you're body or brain doesn't receive the necessary information from the inside you know and environment to actually make sure that you walk and actually it's quite funny because i um i live in lisbon and uh i don't know if you've been to lisbon in lisbon but the the pavement is like with the you know um calzada portuguesa you know and uh it's like for, for me it's such a challenge to work on these things it's just like i need to pay attention to my foot all the time whereas my colleagues portuguese they they walk on this smoothly right because they they kind of like integrate in the schema on how they interact in the environment so they, they don't need to think about it i need to think yeah uh, but that's something very different to say that actually i'm filtering just the relevant information i leave everything out and on the contrary it's like that information is there right it's like it's inside it's just like you know how to deal with it um and that's based on your prior experiences now imagine that you can't do that anymore because i don't know um you've been um, through a trauma, right? So this means that you you are on the age all the time. So this means you cannot afford anymore to just like let it go. It's just like you need to be hyper-vigilant all the time. So uh, a lot of things get into your yeah, conscious uh, yeah, processing uh, and then you just yeah. shut out. Yeah, like so, that. and after a while that gets overwhelming. And when it gets overwhelming, you just like just cut and, uh, you know, and do things automatically. And that's something like, uh, they they say it's right quite nicely um, and strikingly. They say, I feel like I'm an automatic pilot. I'm there, I'm doing stuff, but without being there, right? It's just like somebody else is doing. I know it's myself, doesn't feel like being me. Yeah. But isn't it automatic when I pick the, the cherry? All my movements are automatic, so it's normal, no? So so it depends, depends what you mean by um, I'm sorry. I, I want to say like an automaton, right? Uh -huh. Like machine. That's something very different from automatic, just like the reflex you're doing. An automaton is, is where they have this, um, it's difficult to describe. Again, we don't have the vocabulary. They say, I, 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 am, I know I'm in control, and they are in control. They're doing stuff. They're actually highly functional. They can So job. from outside, you don't see this happening? No. Uh -huh. But from the inside, they say, I feel like an empty shell. I don't feel in control, right? It's just like, I feel like I'm dead inside. I just mm -hmm. like, I'm here. Somebody else is like, and they'll even say, I'm doing some from someone there, like, like a puppet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, I'm just like moving myself 
like robot or like I'm like in a dream. I see myself doing stuff, but without really being there. Um, so there is no no more that sense of immersiveness into into reality, which I, I think see. Uh, uh, it's super important. Um, and uh, for me, this is fascinating because uh, again, it's connected with the subjectivity of experiences, right? So subjectivity is not a gloss. It's not an epiphenomenon. That's something like exists there, right? It's so really important, and you see it that it is there only when it gets cracked, when it's like removed or something. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you realize, whoa, actually, I had that. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it, it happens today. It happens a lot because we have the mind-body dualism that we we notice that we have a body mm. only when there is a problem. Mm. You have pain or illness or something, and then you realize you have a body and you go there and try to cure it from a very physical. Yeah, way. exactly. But that, but but the body is there all the time. I mean, yeah, and then it's good to feel yeah. it actually. So that's that's another thing. I'm a, it's sort of personal, but like if even if I look at Descartes, I think uh, Jan Megilchrist has this description how he describes laughing from a third person point of view, which is kind of crazy, like how he describes all the muscles that are moving when he's laughing. And it's it's like he was depersonalized somehow from the feeling of uh, having fun or something like that. Whereas, you know, my body is like an immense source of joy. So that was another thing that came up when, when, I, when we were talking about this, in, that <clears throat> it feels to me that we, we all have the capacity to to move back and forth between automatic and uh, and conscious and especially when we learn something new mm. so i started jujitsu two years ago i was 50 years old and i was like the greenest in the the oldest and the greenest in the dojo and it was really an experience to to actually go through the process i'm, I'm i've been going through it's a long long one so i will never be as good as somebody who, who picks it up young and that's exactly what i feel there sometimes that there are so many movements to learn and i have to re re-put re my uh, things into my consciousness to move those muscles in that order and after a while it becomes automatic and transparent but i have this overwhelming experience of not even physical but more like mental of learning some new movement i get of course physically tired and beaten up but also mentally tired in this sort of like moving up and down constantly mm. between automatic and conscious yeah and then um that's that's a very important point because that's one of the things that we um highlight in um one of the papers that i i did with adam saffron and I have a, a couple of actually follow-up studies. And uh, it's like it started with a theory paper and then I'm, I'm almost finished like a couple of empirical studies on this, where I basically contrast um, experienced meditators with the personalization. Why? Because in experienced meditators, do you do exactly what you do? Exactly, just like, exactly. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. You train the flexibility of giving back and forth, whereas in the case of the personalization, that flexibility is like gone you can't you're just like you're stuck on one mode right so you can't really flexibly navigate between the two right um and i think that's uh that's that's super important and obviously the sense of agency is like very exactly good. so isn't it the difference because some somebody told me that like the 
physiologically fear and excitement are the same thing the difference between them is that when you are excited you feel in control and when you are in fear you are not in control yeah and so it seems to me like meditation and depersonalization are almost the same thing except that in meditation you are mastering the moves between yeah, somebody, these, somebody right? needs to look at the biochemistry of what has what is happening at the cellular level when you're excited from fear rather than from joy because I'm, I'm pretty sure there's going to be something very different happening at the chemical level, right? Fear and fear, fear and excitement? Yeah. It's yeah. Both, both like an adrenaline thing. That's what I, I mean, maybe it's superficial. Maybe you know, you know more about this. But, but let's go back to meditation and depersonalization. Because as you say, it's like when John Verwaki talks about uh, meditation, he actually uses the glass metaphor, but not the glass you used like your glasses that it's usually transparent you look through it you look at the world through it and when you meditate you basically take it off and look at it mm. and then you have to put it back so that's the move and actually you, you get back into your transparency and look at the world again so he always talks about how only mindfulness is not enough a lot of people do meditation mindfulness where you basically take off your senses and look at them and you have pain you try to actually depersonalize from it and look at it but then he says you have to have the opposite move too and he calls it he calls it contemplation it's another practice where you put your glasses back and you look at the world through it so you 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 learn you relearn how to use it and you become conscious about this sort of like vertical move between those two and so when, when, when I read the paper about the personalization, I had constantly this in my mind that basically this is the same thing, except that in meditation, you learn how to play with this. Mm. Whereas in depersonalization, it feels like it just falls on top of you and you are in, yeah. you get yeah. stressed because yeah. you are not in control, right? Yeah, it's overwhelming. Yeah. So you're dealing with a lot of uncertainty all of a sudden of, of, and you're not in control because, well, most of the people you choose to meditate, you even pay to go to the school <laughs> to meditate. So you have like a strong incentive, right? It's just like I'm going there and I'm paying from my bank account to do this, right? So you feel very much in control of that. But one needs to be careful because there are accounts of, um, you know, uh, depersonalization and psychotic states induced by excessive or, you know, um, some, I don't know, forms of meditation right so it really depends on people depends on many many settings because well maybe you're doing a certain practice which is absolutely fine and then something happens in your life or i don't know something you ate something <laughs> and that changed completely your metabolism and then when you do exactly the same practice that will just like uh, freak you out so um I, I think people should be careful of this because it's not one size fits it all. It's not a tool for uh, feeling good. <laughs> uh, it's a tool for uh, knowing oneself better, right? Uh, with whatever that comes. And the self, as I said, is never static. So we are going through phases, ups and downs, and um, we are evolving, we are changing. So when we see ourselves, we never see ourselves the same twice. We're always Changes. somebody else <laughs> each time. And at the same time, we are the same. So yes. somehow yeah. I relate yeah. to my 
yeah. three-year-old self. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the other thing I was thinking about is this movement. So you actually, if I hear it correctly, even propose it as a therapy for this, that you you move. And I, I do a practice called uh, movement medicine. That's basically a free dance, no choreography, a lot of music. Uh, it's sort of related to five rhythm, if you know this. So there is an arc of like going slow and go up, fire, and then go down again. And so you have this arc of like three hours and we do have topics about things. And, and a lot of them is working with like my, my early childhood before I spoke because of the movement, I can go back there. And I, it's, it's emotionally sometimes really overwhelming. It's, it's amazing how things come up that never comes up in like a talk therapy. Mm. And in certain situation, I, I do feel lethargic. Like I don't want to move. I just want to lie down on the floor, but I'm aware of it. I'm not the little kid anymore. And one of the instructions, you don't have to do it, but one of the suggestions that the, the, the teacher says is that you just move. When you feel that, you just move out, <clears throat> out of it. So whatever, you don't have to, to there are, there's no choreography, you do whatever you want, just don't stay still, just move. Mm. And it goes away. Mm. Yeah, so this is this is indeed very powerful. But as I said, it's like it's it's uh, what you say. Just move for me is that imperative. Stay alive, right? It's just like, and that means move, right? Uh, just like, except maybe the freeze. Yes, yes, but that's you. You can't keep the freeze uh, uh, state for very long because so for for your homeostatic needs in still need to breathe and eat <laughs> uh, and all the other functions so for bodily functions so um, yeah so I think that's that's important yeah I mean it's a fascinating subject we could go on and on uh, I would like to ask you about like usually do it in the beginning but I wanted to introduce the subject because uh, it's not I think it's pretty unknown for most of the people what we have been talking about. So I wanted to introduce a little bit before asking this question, which is why are you interested in this? So have you ever had this depersonalization experience or what is attracting you towards researching this subject? So because in my, you know, theory, it's, there's always something in you that is moving towards the subject like the love thing you know like mm -hmm. so 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 have you ever asked yourself this question why this subject yes yes um and um you will find my answer a bit surprising but actually is that question that came to me uh so i um i was in london i was at this workshop uh where I was, I was talking about at that time I was working on um, uh, face perception, autism, and how we basically, you know, automatically couple our, you know, um, the social glue where we basically mimic each other's faces and we feel connected with others, not necessarily through theory of mind, but 
through very subtle body movements that kind of like gives you hints about your connected or disconnected. Yeah. And my idea was that uh, uh, autistic people is not that they don't have theory of mind or drive to connect with each other, but because they have a very different way of perceiving the world. So um, uh, because the senses basically function differently, right? So you have a different way of integrate different sensory modalities together. So literally we're not perceiving the same event the same way. So this means they can't really form that social group, right? So I was working on that. And uh, obviously I was interested a lot on multisensory integration, face perception perception, and embodiment. And I, I gave this talk in um, in London and I, I had one slide where I looked at a typical sensory um, experiences and feeling of, uh, you know, being like uh, not really in your body. Yeah, as I just, you do stuff, but yeah. Uh, because you learn how to do it yeah but you you you're not really there you're not uh, physically there and um, after my talk I had somebody from the audience that uh, came to me and said um, what you're describing there it's very familiar to me and this is how I feel all the time but I'm not diagnosed as an autistic person so I don't know what's going on here right I said okay so this is interesting so um yeah, so I started to engage with uh, that person, and um, later on, I uh, uh, that person was diagnosed with depersonalization, and then and I had a look on the on the condition, and I realized that, as you said, it's like there's not much there. And for me, as a philosopher, that was like mind blowing, fascinating. What do you mean? It's just like some people that have the you know that pane of glass, you know, as like the 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 subjectivity in itself, kind of like disrupted and nobody talks about this it's like that's the thing um you know th there are people that feel like zombies in the world so who cares about the, you know thing thinking zombies like <laughs> thoughts <laughs> thoughts experiments it's just like actually there are real people here that have those experiences and they feel this way because their subjectivity is kind of like uh disrupted so i think we need uh we need to have a closer look at this because i was like as i said fascinated with the subjectivity of the experiences and this is how I got actually interested in the phenomena. So it's like literally somebody uh, uh, came uh, came to me, and then I realized. So I I never I don't think I ever experienced depersonalization in the severe forms, but I think every each of our, one of us experienced at a certain point in some way or another. <laughs> in my case, it comes from the jet lag. So when I'm jet lagged, uh, I'm just like there without really being there just like i'm doing stuff i'm sometimes i even deliver a talk right uh but i i'm not uh you know and then i i crash and uh sleep and then the next day it's fine yeah um or you've been heavily drunk or i don't know you smoke cannabis or something and you're kind of like uh, and then uh and then um uh, people say that you you can come back uh but in severe cases, you actually stay in that state um, and you can't come back anymore, right? Um, and that's that's a bit like um, uh, highly distressing. And, and these people feel um, they some one of them, Joe Perkins, has this beautiful book called uh, Life on Automatic Pilot. And he says that um, a condition that makes you feel invisible is invisible in society right? Because you don't feel real, you feel invisible, you're not really there, you're just a ghost, you're just like going through life like, a, you know, 
automaton like a, a dream but because you're doing everything so functionally okay people don't see that it's like something deeply uh, disturbing um, and distressing in yourself so it's invisible in society uh, and that also kind of like motivated me um, also to you know join forces so people that already worked on this and uh, clinicians and um, neuroscientists and psychologists uh, I have collaborators all over the world on this um, and yeah try to raise awareness and I'm super happy because right now I have two running projects on this <laughs> Uh, trying to gather some data and try to figure out what's going on and yeah I look forward so, so the moment, usually these people want to change right so that's an important part of it because otherwise it could be just a condition you're okay with it no they're not okay with it they're not okay with it huh? yeah no does it any, have to do anything with dissociation so um so some people will argue that dissociation self-detachment is not the same phenomena and i tend to agree um so for instance like i know that i suffered from dissociation and i have proof for that right so um when i was very young when i was a kid i uh i loved music very much um and i was reading notes and everything yeah so it was pretty good and then uh, something happened uh and that kind of like kept me away from music yeah and the next day or the next week or something i wasn't able to read notes anymore right musical notes right so that i completely dissociated from uh, from that but that's something very different from self-detachment because self-detachment is just like you're there just seeing yourself and doing it in my case which is like complete like split yeah uh, and i think dissociative phenomenon and self-detachment in the case of depersonalization obviously there is overlap because as i said it's like this we are one single being <laughs> that's like we have many things in common this is a soup this is a cocktail right um with um many common ingredients uh but i i think also that um yeah these are two two phenomena yeah uh because i i i don't feel self-detached i'm very much present but i kind of like dissociated from that uh you know part of my life or and i and cognitively i know right like with the tennis ball i know that that's a tennis ball but i you know just like cannot but react in a certain way in this case i know that i was good at reading notes and I, I knew exactly what note that should be and you know sing it and now i can't even know which one is the basic it's like it's just some dots on the some mm -hmm. lines yeah um and i know that i should have the knowledge to be able to read that because i did it for like 12 years 13 years of my life right and, and it's not as if i don't know that those are notes right um musical notes i know very well that and you remember notes. that you knew i remember yeah so it's just like yeah. i have very clear you know it's not um i don't i haven't lost track of that self it's just like it's it's a it's a dissociative phenomenon i just simply dissociated from that yeah hmm, okay well, thank you, Anna. It was fascinating. Uh, thank you. So I usually give the opportunity to my guests to ask me a question. Okay, so I'm going to ask exactly the same question that you asked me <laughs> now. It's just like, um, yeah, so what drives you into this, um, you know, creating this podcast and, you know, want to engage with people on this? So what, what, what you are after in, in this endeavor? 
Thank you for the question. Very nice. More, a lot of people ask me that, and I always have a different answer because it's uh, it's there are so many reasons. But if I if I connect it to the personalization, it's basically I have a quest myself to connect my you know in spirituality it's called like soul hunting like the different pieces of my soul to put it together because i'm a scientist i wanted to mention this i don't know how many scientists feel this i wouldn't call it depersonalization because what i hear from you it's a, it's a, it's a serious condition but there is some kind of aspect of doing science we are forced to detach from the subject that we like because otherwise we wouldn't be mm. attracted to it right so there is this this move which has a lot of good reasons which is to you know avoid self-deception not to trick ourselves into something that is not true because we are after the truth and so there is this move of detaching ourselves from the subject that we study and this requires a sort of I don't know how to call it dissociation of one's one oneself, my my scientist self from the self that was attracted to that subject, mm. and you know, from a very very like everyday point of view, before AI got leaked from the lab, <laughs> like five years ago, ten years ago, it was a very hard subject to talk about at dinner conversations. So I had my scientist self who went in the lab, did math, I wrote papers, and I went home, I had my kids, I had uh, dinner with friends. It was very hard to connect those different lives. So I'm, I'm got 50 and I decided to try to do this unification. And this podcast is part of it. So I have a blog. I'm trying to in, even incorporate things into my research is not maybe not as easy as if you do psychology or philosophy because it's some, somehow closer to your subject i do ai so we are actually engineering this kind of systems but i think this is also very very useful when i'm thinking about creating these systems uh, thinking about like what michael is doing for example about uh, this technological approach of mine everywhere it's beautiful and it's very useful for thinking about the future ai systems so there is that part and there is a lot of, you know, self-improvement things like this movement practices, therapy, uh, doing like cold immersion, which is something like if you, you cannot be detached from yourself when you're sitting in zero degree water for 10 minutes, you know, <laughs> you have to be there, <laughs> otherwise you die. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting like meditative practice to do this. So there are all these things that I'm doing plus my work, plus my, you know, thinking, and I'm trying to put them together and talk to people who are sort of at the, at, at the interdisciplinary edges of these different things. So I will talk to, to researchers like yourself who are researching this kind of uh, psychological aspects, but I will also talk to people who do practices. Mm. And then let's see how it connects to, you know, AI, how it connects to consciousness, how it connects to the philosophy we are all in love with. Yeah, that's uh, that's super interesting and, and beautiful. But if I may, um, just like close the loop, because mm -hmm. 
remember we we started with this uh, idea so you started this idea that well i have several bits of myself and i want to put like together to create like a self but for me what is really interesting that you feel the need to do this through interacting with other people oh, right yeah. it's like you're not doing it on yourself in your in your room right so is there is something about the fact that yeah okay so i need to put the bits together but i can't really do it alone so i really need to interact and get with others i think that's the most important part and um for me, that's that's something that has been um, a bit like overlooked in um, in the literature, simply because, as I said, we start from adult, fully fledged individual, this illusion that we can be alone, but actually we can't because we are, from the very beginning, highly connected with others, ontologically, biologically, at all every single levels, and we continue to be with related with others, and we need to stay related with them, and with the environment. So. I think, again, it shows beautifully, as you said, it's like, yes, I felt the need to do this, but uh, I want to do it by... Um, no, by I absolutely agree with you. Like everything we do, we get better in relationships. So I mentioned you, you movement medicine. I think movement itself is in in the in the common sense like people do sports they go to the gym etc because they know that it's good for their body but one thing in movement medicine that it's a group so it's almost like a group therapy through movement and it's we are forced to enter into relationships with people there's also a contact dance which is a, like an embodied a relationship I don't know if you know this, like two people like moving on top of each other uh, mm. attached at one point, and this point is moving by itself. It's so funny because it's neither you, neither the other who decides where it goes, you know? Mm. And there are so many things come out in this uh, practice that you would... Maybe group therapy could be similar, but it's because it's movement, it's a much earlier age. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It's also true for... Uh, personal relationships like the best way to you know heal from childhood trauma is to find find your partner who is ready to grow with you through these practices and then you grow together and it's beautiful yeah well, thank you very much Anna thank you for the invitation pleasure. very nice <laughs> and hope hope you'll you'll you know get more visibility for this kind of research because I think it's very, very important. Thank you. I'm working on it. So <laughs> um, for for the moment, I'm um, I'm a bit busy collecting data because as I said, it's like, I don't want to just sit in the chair. I just <laughs> like need some data. So I'm quite busy on that side. But uh, yeah, uh, then uh, I'm working on it to get visibility. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.